Happy New Year, Journey. You know, New Year is a time where a lot of people put emphases on new priorities, new goals, new habits, and it's surprising and amazing how crowded the CAC has become the last couple of weeks. You know, everybody's in there starting the year out right, but I've noticed over time that by March it thins out a little bit. By June, I have the place to myself, you know. When it comes to setting goals like that, in order to be effective, I've learned that they really need to rise out of what's important to you. They need to kind of come from your values. Values are that starting place if you really want to attain to your goals. And I think that's true in your personal life, whether you're setting fitness goals um, at work, whether you want to uh, move your business or company ahead, but also especially in ministry. It's very true that our ministry, what we do here at Journey, rises out of our values. A year ago, our leadership team took a day of retreat together, and we prayerfully identified three core values for, for Journey Christian Church. Um, and these values, they, they drive our ministries, they help us filter our decisions, and they keep the main thing the main thing, which here is it's all about making disciples. So those three core values are growing families, growing relationships, and growing spiritually. Now in that last value, in the area of growing spiritually, we, we desire to help you kind of grasp the whole story of God as recorded in Scripture. And we want to show how all of the Bible, Old Testament and New, points and culminates in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Now to help you with that, I'd like to mention two things, uh, maybe some goals to set or action items for, for this year. We want to encourage you to participate in a New Testament reading uh, plan for 2024. Reading through the New Testament in one year is very doable. It's just one chapter a day. If you miss a day, read two. It's not a not a overly, um, you know, it's very, very, very doable. Uh, you, you can find this reading plan on Journey's Version Bible app page, um, or we also use paper technology here, and there's paper versions out on the starting point table or on the front desk in the lobby as well. So let me encourage us to make a habit of reading the, the New Testament this year. Uh, second of all, just along those lines of growing spiritually, we here at Journey are, are committed to preaching through whole books of the Bible or large portions of them. And in 2024, we're going to do deep dive into three books found within our Bibles. Um, starting today, we're going to look at a, a short New, New Testament letter called 1 John. And then over the summer, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Then in the fall, we're going to jump to the Old Testament and go through a series uh, through the whole book of Nehemiah. And interspersed in there, we'll have some other sermons thrown in, but we want to help you understand the, the depth and breadth of, of Scripture by digging deep into those books this year. But today, today begins kind of a slow walk through a short book. It's a letter called First John, and if you have your app with you or your Bible, let me encourage you to open up there this morning. Let me give you a little background on 1 John while you do that. Um, the author, as the name implies, is John the Apostle. Uh, he's a disciple of Jesus. It was written around the year 90, somewhere between 85 and 95 A.D. 
And it's not written to one specific person or specific church. It was written to a group of churches around the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey on the eastern, western shore of modern-day Turkey. Now, when John wrote this letter, he had a couple purposes in mind. He wanted to, one, expose some false teaching that was out there. People had a distorted view of the divinity and humanity of Jesus, so he addresses that. But he also wanted to provide some assurance for the believers of their salvation. Now, John makes those points over and over again in no particular order in, in his book. Now, if the Apostle Paul was writing this letter, it would be very structured, very logical. It would be point one and then point two and then a couple subpoints followed by point three. And here's why point three is important. But John, he's like all over the place. It's like point one, point two, part of point four, but back to point two, then maybe a little bit of point three, then, you know, re rehearse point one. And, and because of that, it's kind of a jumble to read, hard to read sometimes, and challenging to preach through. But as you read it over and over again, you begin to see these themes rise to the surface. They just circle back around on each other throughout the now, linked to those two purposes are really three truths that, Paul, that John drives home in this letter. He really wants to focus on the importance of having a right understanding, a right belief in Jesus. He wants, wants these readers to have a right obedience to God's command. And ultimately, another theme is just having this right love for one another. That's a, a theme that rises up later in the letter. Now, these early believers struggled with a question, a question that I think is very relevant for, for 2024 as well. And that question is, how do you know that our experience with God is genuine? You know, how, how do we know? Because there's other people out there saying different things about Jesus, different things about the church. So how do we know where we are landed is genuine? So Paul writes this little short letter to assure these believers that their encounter with Jesus is real. And Jesus himself is real. The resurrection Jesus is real. Now that very question might be lingering in your mind today. You might be struggling with that, thinking, is this really, is, is it real? Does it really make a difference? Is, is this experience that I can have with God, is it genuine? Now what I say next might be a total duh moment, but it's important. And here it is, that Christianity stands or falls on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, it's no no-brainer, right? You're probably going, duh, Dave. That's what I went to seminary for, right there. <laughs> Paid a lot of money just to say that sentence. No, but it's, it's foundational. Whether or not a genuine incarnation of Christ really took place. You know, we're just coming coming out of the Christmas season where it's all about the incarnation, where God, where we talk about God fully taking on full humanity while still maintaining his full divinity. And that's, you know, a lot of theological issues around that. That's a basic belief tenet of Christianity. But we know by reading 1 John that the people of his day uh, who call, even called themselves Christians believed something very different. I think the most simplest way I can say it is that getting Jesus right matters. It makes a huge difference on where you land with, with your understanding about Jesus. Now, 
The author C.S. Lewis, he famously put it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says the options to, as to who Jesus is and what Jesus did can basically be reduced to four. You know, you could, uh, Jesus is either a liar, that he's not who he said he was. He could be a lunatic, uh, you know, he thought he was somebody else, you know, a regular Joe with the Messiah complex. He could be a legend. That simply means someone who was not who others later imagined him to be. You know, he kind of grew into that over centuries. Or he could be both. He is who he said he is. And his birth, his life, his death, resurrection, prove it to be true. Author and pastor J.D. Greer puts it this way, faith is the unexplainable meeting the undeniable. I like how he sums it up that way. Now, th think of that statement this way, and, and maybe you've heard this before, but back in 2002, there was a, a Yale physicist named Robert Adair, and he studied the science of hitting a major league fastball, and he published it in a book in 2002 called The Physics of Baseball. And, and here's, what, here's what he found. Uh, a 90-mile-an-hour fastball travels 60 feet 6 inches from the pitcher's mound to the catcher's glove in less than a half a second. He timed it at 400 milliseconds. And then he figured out it takes the bat batter's brain 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air, to, to see the stitching, get the image in his brain, and decide whether or not he's going to swing. Now that's half the time that the ball is in the air. The batter is simply trying to decide what to do. Am I going to swing or not? Now if the batter decides to swing, it he spent the brain spends another 100 milliseconds deciding whether to swing high, low, inside, or outside. So you're down 300 milliseconds before you ever swing the bat. Now the swing itself takes about 150 milliseconds, and during the first 50, the batter can stop the swing and check it. The, beyond 50 milliseconds, the bat is moving at 70% of its final speed and can't be stopped. And then Adair says there's about a seven millisecond variation which will cause the batter to either hit a foul ball or miss the ball altogether. So adding that all up, 200 milliseconds for locating the ball, 100 for making a decision, 150 for swinging the bat, that's 450 milliseconds. But the ball travels to the catcher's glove in 400 milliseconds. So Adair concludes that according to the law of physics, hitting a 90 mile an hour fastball is impossible. Now, would you agree with that? No. Why? Because we've seen it happen. It's because, you know, we, we can, you know, study his calculations, and that's way beyond my thinking, but I can look and see that it's happened. And like all of my highly theological and uber-academic research, I turned to YouTube this week and uh, because I wanted to see what that looked like. And, and I watched, you know, home runs being hit off of 100 and 102-mile-an-hour fastballs. And these guys are like freaks of nature. Um, that's why they are, they're in the MLB and I'm on the couch. You know, it's just these guys are so well-trained and have, have practiced so much that as soon as that ball leaves the hand of the pitcher, they know what's happening. Faith is that unexplainable where it meets the undeniable, because John says, I've seen it happen. And we get that sense in the opening words of 1 John, because here's how John puts this undeniability of the resurrected 
Jesus. In the introduction of his letter, he puts it this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy Getting Jesus right means this opportunity to step into fellowship with God the Father. If you get Jesus wrong, well, you don't want to end up there. You don't want to get there. This is why John is so passionate in these opening verses. He's saying that Jesus, the one that we've experienced, you too can experience and know him and have fellowship with him just like we do. And he wants his readers and us today to have that same relationship with Jesus that he has. So we see this passion flowing out of John in a couple of ways. He has, he has this passion to know Jesus. And John draws attention to really two important truths at the, these opening verses, that Jesus is fully God. He's saying that he has always existed with the Father as God. There's never been a time when the Son was not. He was before the beginning, in the beginning, from the beginning. There never was a time when Jesus Christ was not there. So when, when John wrote his gospel, Gospel of John, he begins it in, in similar language by saying in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. So John is really clear that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. And that part is really where John leans into when, when he's using all these verbs of perception and seeing and hearing and touching. And he goes into detail about the physical humanity of Jesus. So he uses these, these four, four per, verbs to talk about this word of life. We've heard him with our ears. John repeats that for emphasis. He says, we've seen him with our eyes. Three times he emphasizes that in the first three verses. There's this intentional, intense gazing of Jesus, not only on, with his earthly life, but his resurrected life. Then he says, we, we physically touched him with our hands. He's real flesh and blood prior to his death and after his death and resurrection. This is no spirit, no ghost, not, this is not the ghost of Christmas past coming around. And he says, we testify and proclaim this eternal life to you. Now, John, in his era, he was faced with some false teaching that really threatened these young churches. The fancy word for it is Gnosticism, which is a Greek word which means knowledge. And these Gnostics, as they were called, they appeared in a lot of different varieties, but they had a couple basic uh, convictions. One, that they believed that physical matter is evil, or at least inferior 
to spiritual realities. So created stuff is, is not on the level as spiritual stuff. They also believe that salvation was, was found through some mystical, even secret kind of knowledge, and only the special could obtain or find that secret knowledge. Well, what that, what that meant is that they denied the physical incarnation of Christ. And as you can imagine, that's a big deal. And that prompted John to write this letter to those area churches around the city of Ephesus. Now, one camp of those Gnostics said that Jesus was only a spirit. He only appeared to be fully human, but he was just kind of this ghost that floated around for three years. And when the disciples saw him after the resurrection, it, it wasn't a real body. It was just a spirit. Now, another camp of the Gnostics said that Jesus was a man, he was created, and he didn't become God until the Spirit descended on him at his baptism, and that Spirit left him before he went to the cross. So, again, false teaching. Well, the biblical idea of Jesus is that he's not a myth, he's not a fairy tale, he's not a fable, he's not a spirit only or an illusion. As John is saying, you know, we've seen it, we heard him, we touched it. He had full humanity, was fully God. He has always been with the Father, and at Bethlehem, he came to be with us. But you know what? It's, in a lot of ways, it's easier to believe in Christ if he remains merely a spiritual reality. I mean, we, we can see how a physical Christ could be a stumbling block for believers even today. I mean, we, I hear people talk about, well, I'm spiritual, but, but not religious, and I'm not even sure what that means. But it's easier to think about, you know, following just a spiritual aspect of Jesus. You know, but when they begin to talk about Jesus the Christ as a real man that walked on the real earth, became a particular man, born and died in a particular place, issuing forth particular commands and dying on a specific particular cross, exposing our particular individual sins in our particular lives, then Christ ceases to be acceptable to many people because he begins to start meddling in our affairs. He begins to look at what's going on inside of us. And the stumbling block is because Jesus is fully God and fully man. That means his words, his teachings flow out of history and into one particular inspired book that we call the Bible. And that particular book contains the truth and holds all authority. His words teach us how to live. And that means we can no longer pose as being self-sufficient. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life. See, when God became man in Jesus, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And that ticks a lot of people off. And it becomes a stumbling block for anybody with a rebellious heart. So people ex exclaim then, just as now, you know, who does he think he is? Or they accuse the church, who do you think you are? Saying that there is only one truth that the Bible has all authority. And we say, Jesus is God. This is his word. So you can begin to see why, why John is so passionate about that he wants these believers to know Jesus. 
the real Jesus, the physical Jesus, fully God and fully man. But that passion also flows out from John because he has a passion to share Jesus. Because as these opening verses describe, there's this invitation in there to join in this fellowship. Reading again in verse 3, he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. And why does he do that? So that you may have fellowship with us, with other believers. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to you to make our joy complete. John proclaims Jesus because there's this fellowship that he wants all of humanity to be a part of, to join in on. And the, the biblical idea of, of fellowship is, is this intense uh, sharing of, uh, there's this common sharing of life together. Sharing of things that are significant, that are important. There's a joy and oneness in a group of people who are one-minded regarding the same things. They common values, common beliefs, common goals. You love the same things. You pursue the same agenda. There's fellowship with God and with other people. But it's also something that you experience in life. You know, what, what I love about reading the Gospels and looking at the miracles of Jesus is he takes these everyday occurrences and he uses them to point to a greater reality. They point beyond themselves to things that are true about God. They reveal more about him, about our father, how God works in life. And those miracles point to a life in God and a, a life that we too can share. And we can experience this life. We can experience this fellowship with God. For example, in John chapter 6, where, where Jesus fed 5,000 people, he then ex explains that this was a sign of God's power to satisfy true life. Because he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. And those who come to him, they're going to find deep soul satisfaction. Have you ever felt that? Just a satisfying peace that only Jesus can bring? That's one way we fellowship with God. And then in John chapter 4, it tells a story about Jesus' encounter with a woman by a well, a woman with, with kind of a shady background who had a lot of dirty, dark secrets, but Jesus loved her anyway. Have you ever felt the love of God pour into you <laughs> despite all of your dirty, dark secrets and sin? I mean, to be fully known by Jesus and fully loved, man, that's a beautiful then in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is out with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm uh, starts to rage, and the disciples who are experienced boat handlers, experienced fishermen, they are afraid they're going to drown, and they accuse Jesus, you know, don't, don't you care? You're going to let us perish? Jesus, he wakes up from his nap, and he says, peace, be still. Wind and waters calm down. I look at that and I think, man, there's times where Jesus has calmed the storm in life. Have you ever felt that? Has Jesus ever given you peace in the midst of the storm? That's fellowship with God. And in Matthew chapter 9, a, a woman comes up to Jesus who had experienced 12 years of a menstrual flow, and that made her ceremonially unclean. So she would have been... Uh, 
outcast society, not touched, not, you know, she couldn't have been a part of the social sphere. She would have been considered unlovable. And Jesus touches her with this tender term and calls her daughter. And her soul fills with this awareness of God's love and God's care. Have you ever felt that in your soul? God saying to you, daughter, you are my child. You seeing the point there about this fellowship with God? We fellowship with other people in the church body and our fellowship is also with God. And fellowship is something that we can experience. Both are life-changing and life-transforming. And this fellowship that John is inviting us into is deeper or richer than any college fraternity or sorority. It's richer and deeper than following your favorite sports team or club. It's richer and deeper than your national identity or ethnic heritage. It transcends all of those artificial human things that we put into place. Because when Jesus becomes our Savior, God becomes our Father, it's a package deal and we are invited into that relationship. When our daughter Sarah got married, we inherited a son-in-law, Matt, and our daughter became Sarah Kellen. Now along with Matt came his brothers, Josiah and Michael Kellen, and Matt's parents, Tim and Sherry Kellen. And then the whole Keller clan, they came to our house over Christmas and for a few days, and it was great. We shared some rich fellowship together because we share rich faith in Jesus Christ. And it was a lot of fun. It was beautiful. It just filled my soul. And I think that just gives us a little glimpse of, of why John would open up his letter with this passion to say, know the real Jesus and know this fellowship that we can share. You know, back in the year 325, a, a group of church leaders from around the Roman Empire gathered together in a city called Nicaea, modern-day Turkey. And they came together, all these church leaders, they wanted to discuss the question of who is the son? Who is Jesus? How does he fit in with all of this? Now, there's a popular church leader in that day from Alexandria, Egypt, named Arius. And Arius was teaching and preaching that the son did not always exist. There was a time when he was not. He is a created being. But two other teachers and church leaders named Alexander and Athanasius, they strongly opposed that view, believing the biblical truth and doctrine of salvation hung in balance. So they had this council where they worked it out, and in God's providence, the teaching of Arius was defeated and proved to be false. And what came out of that church council in Nicaea, we know as the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed set forth a biblical understanding of the nature and person of Jesus. In the Nicene Creed, both his humanity and his deity are beautifully affirmed. And as his person and work as Christ, they're wonderfully balanced. Now listen to the opening paragraphs of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible, 
and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And it goes on from there, but, but that one statement of faith has gone on to provide a foundation for the church throughout the centuries by clarifying who Jesus is. I invite the praise team back up this morning and let me just say again that getting Jesus right matters. It mattered in the year 90 when John wrote his letter. It mattered in 325 when these church leaders gathered in the city of Nicaea. It matters in 2024 when we gather as Journey Christian Church. Our fellowship with God, it hangs in the balance. Because of who Jesus is, he invites each of us into this fellowship with him, with the Father, and with one another that we call the church. I want to ask you today, Journey, will you accept that invitation? Will you step into the invitation Say, yes, I want Jesus as my Savior. God is my Father, and I want to be a part of his local church. If that's you, come talk to me today or, or talk to Adam. We'll walk through that with you on what that looks like. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you that you sent your son fully God, fully human to us, and that makes such a difference. It makes all the difference in the world. So Father, may we just step into the fellowship. May we accept that invitation that you put before us, the fellowship with you, the fellowship with one another, the fellowship that is life-giving and satisfying. We lift this up and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we continue in worship.